0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this time around, we're finishing what we started. Yeah, this is the second and final part of our, what would you call it, exploration, excavation, celebration, whatever. We're talking Stephen King's It. If you haven't listened to part one, I'd strongly recommend you do so because that was the gentle intro, the human stuff, the quotidian horror of this novel. This week, we're getting to grips with Pennywise himself. What is he? Where has he come from? And what awful, magnificent powers lie behind him in the depths of King's book-spanning universe? Once again, I daren't go alone and the gang of Return with me Ali Malinenko, author of Ghost Girl and This Appearing House, and Nat Cassidy, author of Mary and Awakening of Terror, a podcaster couldn't wish for better friends. Brief warning, we go hard into King's wider lore, and there are some small sort of spoilers for The Outsider, Dreamcatcher, and particularly Under the Dome. I don't want to put you off listening... And they are brief, but I'm a reader and a King fan first and foremost, and protecting the story is always paramount, so you've been warned. And remember, as ever, and sorry for this, if you want to offer this show some much-needed love, you can tweet about it, you can tag a friend about it, I, I love when people do that, or, if you can, leave a glowing review on Apple or Spotify. And for more direct intervention, you can sign up to be a patron at patreon.com slash talking scared pod. And for a few dollars a month, you get loads, properly loads of bonus episodes. But now, to the matter at hand, come with me for the last time to the sewers beneath this benighted town. A monster lies waiting, and we can only defeat it together. Let's talk Scared. Hi, Nat and Ali, and welcome back to Talking Scared for the second half of our mammoth conversation about Stephen King's It. How are you both?
1: Sup, losers?
2: Hello again. It's been a long 27 years, but I'm excited to continue this
0: conversation with you both. Yeah, a lot has happened since we recorded (laughs) chapter one of this. You know, we've all actually met up in person. We sure did. We all went to StokerCon in Pittsburgh. I crossed the ocean twice. What a delight that was, for me at least. Uh, Despite all of that, for listeners, this second episode goes live mere days after the first, which is weird. Magic. But even weirder is that, we won't have recorded this, really, by the time they hear that. So, it, basically, we could all be cancelled and not just not, not even know it yet. <laughs> Enjoy our last taste. Yeah.
1: I mean, listen, it's not an easy book. It, there are problems, and that's okay. Mm.
0: Yeah. Anyone who has heard the first bit and come back is not going to hear anything more controversial in this one. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think... We've crossed the Rubicon in the first one. Now we're just talking about really, really weird shit from the recesses of Stephen King's imagination. So I think we're okay. Everyone's on a much safer footing. But yeah, we are back. We're back in the stew of it, back to Derry. And if if the last time around we talked about the human element of this book, this time it's going to be all about the scary bits, you know, centering on but not limited to the cosmic child-eating dread clown is Pennywise. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. ready. Right, let's do it then. So it's going to get weird this week, listeners. For people who are not like real hardcore nerds about Stephen King, you may learn a thing or two, but you also may start to (laughs) doubt what me and Nat do with our spare time. Giving Ali a pass. (laughs) Ali's kind of like a a reasonable fan of King in his wider (laughs) universe. Me me and Nat are the oddballs.
1: Look, I'm I'm so excited for you guys to nerd out. Like, bring
0: it. Right. Let's start with Pennywise. Let's start with the big bad, because it's testament to the depth of this book that we could talk for 90 minutes and barely mention him. But I do think Pennywise is one of King's greatest and most frightening creations. So broad spectrum, what are your thoughts on, on Pennywise? Either when you read him as a kid now both what are your thoughts
1: well i think that the thing that i love so much about pennywise is that he as a character completely exists in um the uncanny valley right like he is whatever you're most scared of you know he can he changes shape he changes form i i do think i do sometimes wonder like when i was rereading it i do sometimes wonder if king was just like Oh, this clown is so good. I'm just going to keep the clown because like yeah. every iteration that it takes, it's clownish. Like when he's the werewolf, he still has like the, the, um, the fuzzy clown costume button yeah. things. So I do feel like a little bit he was like, oh, no, this is good. I'm, I'm doing a whole Ronald McDonald weirdo thing. And I love that. And I just, I just feel like when you have a creature that's like, I don't know, what scares the living shit out of you, and I will just become it immediately in front of you. It's how do you, how do you compare to that? Like, I, I, I can't think. It's the.
0: <laughs> excuse me, I'm just very <laughs> excited about
1: Pennywise. <playing> <laughs> <laughs> it's quite literally like the thing you're supposed to do as a writer, right? Like it's the show them the thing they fear the most, you know, it's the do like reveal enough so that their imagination fills it in. Here it is. Here's the werewolf. Here's the zombie. Like here's the clown. I, I can't think of a, a monster worse than it. Yeah. I, uh,
2: I love that you touched on uncanny too. Cause that's the thing I, I, I think I really respond to with, uh, with Pennywise as well, because uh, it's easy to forget now that he's been so like, you know, pop pop cultureized and, and mm-hmm. turned iconic and all that stuff. But like, particularly when you're first encountering it or her or him, whatever, whatever pronoun we want to use for Pennywise uh, for Bob Gray, it's easy to forget that like, there's a period in your life when you don't know about Pennywise. <laughs> uh, and so when you first encounter Pennywise, <laughs> Uh, the fact that it's a clown, th- there's a reason why King chose a. Cl- you know, you, you can go back to that great Robert Block quote about like to me horror is a clown at midnight. Like there's just something about the jarring dissonance of this this entity that is supposed to radiate joy and friendliness and approachability and entertainment, and mm-hmm. to have that be corrupt and to have mm-hmm. that it, just fire off all the uh, all the warning signals in your tiny little head exactly like you're saying, like no matter the manifestation that it might conjure up, it's still the clown element that is so freakish and unnerving and, and uh, off-putting. And so that's the thing that like really fills you with that delicious fear, because if it was just a werewolf, you, you, your mind could almost wrap your, your, your hands around it, your mind hands. But because it's like it, because it's a bird with pom-poms on its tongue, there's that moment uh-huh. of like, oh, I don't have a defense for this. I don't have any sort of mental barrier for this, uh, because it's it's supposed to be seductive to children. Like you see how it works on Georgie in the in the first uh, in the first instant. Like it, clowns are supposed to make you happy, even if you have like a clown phobia. Like one of the reasons I think you have a clown phobia is because like you don't trust that sort of messenger. But that's intrinsically what that messenger is supposed to be. Is like, hey, kid. Come and come and come to me. Uh, you're safe with me. I'm going to make you mm-hmm. laugh, uh, and then it rips your bloody arm off.
1: <laughs> is this the beginning of like clowns being scary? Do we have any definitive research on this? Is this is is Pennywise the start of it, or did King capitalize on a thing that
0: maybe already existed? The only thing I know that predates it in pop culture, the two things are. You ever seen the film The Man Who Laughed? Yeah. No. Conrad Veidt. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an old. I think it's I think it's even the 30s. Um, that title is upsetting. Oh, wait, where do you see photos? <laughs> oh god. When this goes live on Friday, I'll 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 put a photo on Twitter, but it, yeah, the, the man who laughed um often thought to give rise to the Joker, which is a, you know, he's an evil clown that predates Pennywise. True. But the other thing is John Wayne Gacy. Yeah, yes. Pogo the Clown. And I heard mm-hmm. a really I heard a really interesting thing about John Wayne Gacy the other the other day, um, that when you look at... Tradi- for those who don't know, by the way, if we've got any like Gen Z listeners who may not know, John Wayne Gacy was an American <laughs> serial killer who was like a really avuncular figure who used to be a party clown for kids, but he also killed 33 boys and buried them in his sub-cellar. So not a nice man. And there's a, a thing about John Wayne Gacy that... Most clowns, their makeup is very, very round because that is friendly. Mm. John Wayne Gacy has completely angular makeup. Oh, my God. Which is almost like he was trying to express something through the mask, which I think is just Mm. creepy. Whereas Pennywise has much more traditional clown makeup. But there is a whole raft of academia into why clowns are scary, things about the fact that there is a dissonance between Their makeup expressions and the real expressions that we can't literally can't read their faces, all kinds of stuff that's really interesting. Right. That's that's the whole Uncanny Valley thing. Like it's it look it's why
1: dolls upset people because they look alive, but they're not alive. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. there's also something like they tend to, in clown makeup, like, A, they move very strangely and broadly and, you know, it's almost Mm -hmm. like that ghost in the movie Pulse. Like, there's just something about it, about the way they move (laughs) that can be very unsettling. Uh, And they usually have, like, garish, over-exaggerated mouths Mm -hmm. that are, you know, kind of up in a rictus sort of grin, so there's something very predatory about that. I think the phobia of clowns like, has been with us as long as there have been clowns. Mm -hmm. I remember Mm -hmm. even, like, Early childhood memories of of seeing like Harlequin masks and just being like, "There's something you don't trust about something that that's happy, you know, yeah. that is so yeah. happy and so like, hello, you so know, the, it's, just, it's so performative, exactly. That's a great word for it, and like, you know, it's performative the way like a a predator's colors are performative. It's like, what are you warning me about?
1: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Oh, that's great. Around. That's great.
0: Yeah. No, I I um. It's called coulrophobia, the phobia of right. clowns. And I, I think there are studies that say it, you know, it does go back, but it reached a peak following Gacy and Pennywise. They are seen as instrumental figures in making this a, a much more widespread phenomenon. That's quite the legacy, right, to help create a phobia. Oh, man. But it, it also speaks to how latent that
2: phobia was. Like if so many people saw that and were like, yes. I fucking hate clowns. Yeah. Like, thank you for
0: reminding me. That I hate clowns. <laughs> it's, it's another way that King kind of did that amazing telepathy with, you know, his childhood self in this book. And we talked to the first episode about how he, he's kind of channeling childhood. It's, it's almost like, even when there wasn't really a, a, a textual understanding of clown phobia, it's like he knew about it already. He, he clearly understood on some fundamental level, that this thing is fucking scary. And he hmm. knew that almost before we did. And that that's, I think, quite cool. Where do we think Pennywise ranks in the hierarchy of King villains? Because I i don't think he's King's best villain. I've got a weird hmm. niche opinion on that. But I do think he's probably the one who's made the greatest cultural impact. Would you agree? Maybe Carrie, but then again, she's not a monster. She's, she's, she's not the villain. She's not the villain. <laughs> you monster. Do you think do you think he's made the biggest cultural impact? I don't know. I might culturally I might lean towards
2: maybe Jack Torrance. Uh oh, it seems yeah, like he's he's yeah. memed like as much. I mean, it's it's hard to say whether or not he's the best villain because it's kind of a cheat cuz he could be all the villains. <laughs> like by White Album rules, like I guess Pennywise would have to be my favorite because he encompasses all the other ones, but yeah, I wouldn't say I I would say he ranks in like if you're going to arbitrarily assign it a number he's definitely in like the top three or five for me you know there is something great and also something kind of discounting about like the last chunk of the book like there is something about Pennywise that works best when he's a little more elusive Uh and the more we start to define him and sort of understand him slash her slash it as an entity like similarly with flag like the more time you spend with flag the less scary he becomes, and and I think something like that happens with Pennywise as well, um, towards the end of the book. Um, but it's it, he's he's definitely hard to beat. I think the villains for me that are scary or or more quote unquote favorite for me personally are the ones that have like a little bit a little bit less mythology around them a little a little bit they're a little bit more personal and a little bit more uh, intimate. I think if that makes sense.
0: My favourite villain from all of King's worlds, I don't think you could guess if I gave you 100 guesses, but it's Big Jim Rennie from Under the Dome. Oh, yeah. Okay. I was going to guess Eldred Jonas, but that's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, Eldred Jonas. Man's a legend. Only because of what he does, (laughs) the bastard. But no, I um, think Big Jim Rennie is is King's most fully visioned and thought out and, like, effective villain because... Dick Cheney. True monstrousness in in human form in a way that you could imagine. Everyone's everyone has a neighbour that could end up being Big Jim Rennie from under the dome. For those who haven't read him, he's basically a kind of analogue for Trump in this microcosmic town that is Chester's Mill that's trapped inside this hermetically sealed dome, and it's just he's a manifestation of of what happens when power is. Unchecked and becomes infinitely corruptible. I think he's wonderful, but obviously he has nowhere near the resonance that that Pennywise has in culture. What what do you think, Abby? What does Pennywise rank for you?
1: So yeah, I'm I'm I agree with you, Nat. Like I do think that you can rationalize the supernatural in a way that you can't rationalize the not supernatural. So while Pennywise is iconic. I don't think he is the scariest villain. For me, it's it's definitely Annie from um, Misery. Mm-hmm. Annie Annie terrifies me in a a deep down way. In a way that like sometimes I'm like, why is this so upsetting to you? Like, what do we have to unpack here? Um, because she she's just truly a fan. To a degree that is murderous obviously mm. and I feel like that could be anyone like also sometimes I'm like could I be that kind of a fan I mean right. I, no because I'm not going to murder anyone I promise but it, it just it, I, I feel like King's best bad guys are human bad guys because they could be your neighbor and right. it could be happening. Right. It could, it, it's the person that locked someone in the basement. Like it's, it's that. And like Pennywise is this entity all of itself. And like you were saying that the, the closer you get, the more it sort of, I don't want to say falls apart. Cause that sounds rude, but like the point in the book when, and we're going to talk about this later, I'm sure when we get to like the last 200 pages, But the point in the book where, you know, Pennywise admits to being afraid of the turtle and admits to being afraid of the kids is where I'm like, Oh, we got you. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we got you. Like you, you can be as scary as you want to be and you can eat all the kids you want to eat, but we can still beat you. And that it feels very clear to me that, you know that they're going to be victorious. Um, and that's where, like, I'm like, well, okay, like, I I can deal with a bad guy like that. that
0: I mean, thing about that thing about getting closer to it, you see more that. I mean, that makes sense though because, well, we'll get into it. What Pennywise is kind of corporeal manifestation in our world, it's a glamour. You know, they they even say at one point mm-hmm. that we think it's called a glamour. You know, and that's the idea. It it is bullshit. It's the living, it's embodiment of bullshit. And yeah. So when you do look, at because I realise this on the read through how thematic all this is, how it's not, it's not unintentioned, abstract surrealism, which I always thought it was. I used to think like there are no rules to this creature. So, you know, is mm. King just riffing? But no, it's all thematically tied up. Like it's a novel that is literally about facing your fear and how by facing mm-hmm. it, that fear starts to fray at the edges and become something, much more mundane and pocketable, and as much as I despise with the death of a million undying sons, the second Andy Machete movie, like <laughs> the thing at the end where they they beat Pennywise by basically belittling him, that uh-huh. does mm-hmm. work thematically. It's just it's just done stupidly, but it works because it is. It's a book about kids quite literally facing their fear and overcoming them, and it all. That sounds so obvious, Dave. But I traced over a thousand pages, it took me a while to realize it's a really simple metaphor that Pennywise embodies. Yeah,
2: absolutely. You're right. It it is very rule bound, and that those rules do have a logic. Like mm. if you are able to give it its power with your mind, then you're also able to give it its its weaknesses. You're also able to give it its uh, its Achilles' heel. Which is why I think actually my uh, my favorite villain is also out of left field. It's a tie, I think, between Christine and uh, Atropos from Insomnia, (laughs) because like there's something terrifying about uh, their rule lists. Like they are, uh, you know, Christine is just always going to keep coming. You can crush her into a cube uh, and that might not be enough. And the idea that there's like a little bald doctor snipping our, our strings, just, you know, goes rogue and decides to just be random death, I think is absolutely terrifying unlike say, you know, this, this cosmic clown who, you know, you can put it into a shape and then almost like the Ghostbusters at the end of Ghostbusters, like that shape still has weaknesses. That shape still has uh, certain liabilities that you can, if you are strong enough mentally to sort of uh, believe in and, and take advantage of, you can best this creature. Although I will say Thinking of all the other references uh, of Pennywise throughout the other King books, there is something I love and hate about uh, one of the references in Dreamcatcher, which also takes place in Derry. Yeah. It's a reference that it actually wasn't defeated. And mm-hmm. there is something about that uh, reading the book again as a, as a, as a middle-aged person. There's something about that that makes me so fucking sad and exhausted mm. and like kind of understands why, like, Stan would kill himself to not face this thing again. Uh, because that victory is not easy. Like, it's such a hard won victory. But the idea that maybe uh, it's still out there is just so enervating and exhausting
0: and like, yeah. God damn it. The idea that Eddie's death is a kind of peric victory, victory is just yeah. depressing because it, it needs to yeah. be decisive. Well, let's talk about that now because Dreamcatcher has an, a number of links. So I, th- I think the reference you're making is that there is some graffiti in right. the dairy section of Dreamcatcher that simply says Pennywise lives. Um, yeah. My response has kind of been just to dispense with it and discount it because I really don't like Dreamcatcher. <laughs> Rock bottom, my least favourite Stephen King novel you are correct and i think he would agree with that i think he has agreed with that in the past you know um so uh, yeah i'm i'm okay with ignoring that as canon I'm, although that's a cheat isn't it because if we're going to talk about king's macroverse and all that you can't ignore anything as canon so does 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 pennywise live oh i don't know because there are other there are other tiny links in other books that you know like in tommy knockers for example someone sees a pair mm-hmm. of eyes staring from the yeah. sewer, a pair of coin-like eyes staring from the sewer. You think, that oh, that's Pennywise as well. So maybe maybe he has endured. But the, the bigger thing with Dreamcatcher that seems to key into it in a way that no one has ever explained to me, I, I don't understand the link. Oh, nerd hats. Nerd hats. Well, the, well yeah. This, have you read Dreamcatcher, Ali? I have. You have, right. Okay, so we're all in the same annoyed pond then. You know, there's the whole thing at the end of Dreamcatcher where this kind of this alien Gray has this kind of psychic extension of itself that's called Mister Gray. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Pennywise, for reasons I don't understand as well, is also called Bob Gray. I'm going to throw this open to mm-hmm. you. So Pennywise goes by the nom de plume Bob Gray in it in Dreamcatcher, which is the book which takes place partially in Derry. At least the kids come from Derry. This thing that gets into his brain is called Mister Gray, but the link mm-hmm. is never really cemented. Do you think it is the same thing? What do you think it means? Why is Pennywise called Bob Gray? What do you think, guys? I've got no idea.
2: Oh, I'll I'll throw some more bombs uh, into this uh, conversation right away too. There, speaking of Under the Dome, uh, oh the, yeah, uh, yeah, the symbol on the machine yeah. that the alien spoiler for Under the Dome—it's aliens. <laughs> uh, uh, but the symbol on the machine that makes the dome is basically the exact same symbol as the one on Pennywise's door, which is like this like kind of pseudo Chinese ideograph um, that I don't think actually means anything. It looks kind of similar to the to the symbol that means child, I guess, um, from from what I was able to glean. But I think it's just a squiggle, uh, but it's basically the same squiggle. So that's another alien connection. There's also the. Short story Grey Matter. Yeah. Speaking of Greys, where it is like another grey blob. Uh uh there's uh what other but what other alien references? There's let, the let
0: uh, me just jump in a second, because in Grey Matter, which is a short story in Night Night Shift, and a Bangor sewer worker in that story reports seeing a spider the size of a dog in the right. sewers with a web full of kitties. And that was published in nineteen seventy-three. So yeah. That maybe this thing has been gestating for years. I mean, carry on. That sorry, (laughs) no. But like,
2: there there are a significant number of like capital A alien extraterrestrial Mm. uh, references to a a Pennywise type creature throughout his works. Which and you know even in the the smokehouse scene, like we see that it, the entity of it crash lands into earth, like, you know, via a comet or something like that. So there is something, you know, uh, objectively alien about it. Like, um, but yeah, that connection with, uh, with Dreamcatcher, and there, there, are, there are other connections with Dreamcatcher too. Like the, the, you know, the, the eggs, uh, sort of similarity, the, you know, kind of similar end of, of trying to crush all the eggs basically. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the, uh, I forget if they have a an actual group name, because, yeah, I kind of memory hole a lot of that book. But, like, this, the friends in Dreamcatcher also have a similar kind of psychic bond that the Losers Club has. Um, so there seems to be, like, another, uh, you know, benevolent force also working through them against this gray force. There's similarities to, uh, in The Outsider, El Cuco. Mm-hmm. Uh, like... King uses very similar descriptors of it being like this clay sort of formless hominid shape that like Patrick Hockstetter sees as he's being dragged away by it uh, in Patrick Hockstetter's death scene. Um, so like, yeah, are they all just like kind of aliens? I guess like for so if, if you could remove Dreamcatcher from it, I would like... <laughs> the theory more, because Dreamcatcher is so, like, Whitley, Strieber, Little Grey Men, alien iconography, that there's something about that kind of cheapens it as an interdimensional
0: being. Yes. It, yeah, it feels too small.
2: Yeah, the the aliens in Dreamcatcher feel like they're from another planet. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just like, beep, bop, boop, hello, we're we're aliens. But it, like, is so effective as something beyond our Cosmology, something beyond our our ken, something beyond our understanding. That uh, yeah, there there are some of those connections that like excite me as a fanboy, but as like a someone who
0: wants to be scared, gets like a little disappointed. You've struck an interesting thing there because I've always wondered about that symbol being in uh, under the dome. I've mm. always wondered about that, and I would never considered that it's actually a, a kind of triumvirate because under the dome. Has the symbol and aliens? Dreamcatcher has aliens and Derry and Mister Grey, mm-hmm. and then obviously it at the the anchor point. And it's like maybe that is the answer to those weird links. Maybe it is that it's you know it's an extraterrestrial thing that that symbol is something from some other culture. It, it does all feel cheap though compared to it's truly like super terrestrial origins you know i do agree that it feels small so let's let's have that conversation then because pennywise exists in this strange abstract ephemeral state for so much of the book and despite late revelations you know the fact that he may be her and stuff um what do you think pennywise is do you think the book explains it satisfactorily let's start with you Ali. What? What is your understanding of Pennywise's nature? So contrary to all of the like ties that you guys just created, like
1: I've never thought of it as an like a beep, bop, boop alien. Mm-hmm. It has always been for me something outside of the dimension of the world that we know. I, I understand, like it comes in like when they see it in the smokehouse scene, it comes in on like a comet, so it's like it feels like it should be from another planet. But the conversations that take place in the book that it has with the turtle clearly state that like, the turtle vomited up the world that we live in and we know, that the kids live in and know. And it is clearly outside of that. So it's it's just always been an amorphous sort of Entity, like, when when Bill's getting dragged towards the deadlights, and you, like, one of my favorite parts of the book is the understanding that, like, it is Pennywise and also anything else you're afraid of, but it's also something that lives beyond. Uh It lives out there, and if you go to where it is, you will never come back from that space, and I think that's the scariest thing about it is it's how amorphous it is, how, like, unending it is, um, so yeah, no, I can't just be like, well, it's an alien. That feels too small. It feels too confined. And I think also, like, in, in terms of what you were talking about before with, you know, the way it, you know, did did it survive? Like, did it show up? The stories that were written before it that feel like it? How many times can I say it? <laughs> 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 um... I feel like it's just so much a part of King's personal iconography that I, I don't think it's possible for him to not call it back up. Like, I just feel like it lives so deeply inside his understanding of the world. And I think I, this might be influenced by the fact that I'm currently reading Don's Macabre. Okay. And yeah. I just got through the part where he's talking specifically about uh, suspension of disbelief and how kids can suspend their disbelief in a way that adults can't suspend their disbelief. And the moment someone says, Oh, do you see the seam on the monster? That is the moment that the, the, the illusion is ruined for you. And I'm thinking specifically about the scene that he literally put that directly into it. Like when the kid is dying, he's another Eddie, which is also weird. Why are there so many Eddies? um, he literally is looking for the zipper. Like there's some part of his brain. That's like, I have, I I have to understand that this is fake and can't be real. And I feel like that idea that he puts into his book is an idea that just, it just lives in him. And the notion of it just lives in him, which is terrifying, but also amazing. Like I have so much, so much respect.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, first of all, uh, Allie, you know what an eddy is is just another name for a whirlpool, which is the the phenomenon that is created as water goes down the drain. So you see oh it's God. all thematically connected oh my to the spools. And that's why there's so many Eddies in it. Oh, my God. But, uh, <laughs>
1: I have to lay down. You've completely <laughs> blown Oh, my God.
2: I'm a consummate bullshitter. Let me, I'm, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just flexing those skills for a moment. Um, but, no, I think, I think you nailed uh, something really fundamental about King. Uh, Neil and I actually talked about this uh, off mic weeks ago about fairy tale, uh, but, which is King's most recent book. King is a consummate improviser. Like he famously doesn't like to outline. He likes to kind of not know where his books are going. He sits down and he just kind of writes them and, you know, almost compares it to like receiving a radio transmission. Uh, and obviously, you know, anyone that actually writes knows that some of that is bullshit. Like just just by <laughs> by virtue of drafting, like it's not sure. all improv. You're going back and you're fixing things and you're, you are you know, you're refining. Uh, there's a whole process of, of uh, you know, putting structure onto a thing. But I think it still speaks to his kind of, his preferred method of creativity is just to let shit come out. He's not a Tolkien. He's not uh, someone who like arduously sits down and maps the rules and the, the logic of this, you know, imaginary plane that he is, he is, you know, fully investing with, with a backstory and with, uh, with flesh and language systems. And here's the map. Like you look at the map of Midworld, and it's like a fucking Question mark spiral. It's like none of this geography makes sense because he's not, uh, as, as Neil pointed out, he's not a world builder. Like he's a world creator, mm-hmm. but he, he doesn't like, mm-hmm. he's not an architect. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a painter and he's just like, okay, this is the thing that makes sense in this moment. This is the reference that I think will be fun to explore here. And so there is, you know, you do get that kind of uh, the, the, the pro. The prose, uh, uh, not not p r o s e, but p r o s of like, you know, those moments of connection and those moments of overlap and references. And oh, was that was that that in this was that Christine picking up Henry Bowers? Oh my God, Mm -hmm. that's so. But then you also get these moments of like, wait, is it just a fucking like little green man? Like, was this thing we were all afraid of just like you know a a. a boggart and you know, sometimes, sometimes he specifically like, I don't want to spoil the dark tower for anybody, but there's a huge ending in towards the end of the dark tower where it is just kind of like purposefully disappointing because he is trying to like deflate the, the cosmology of this, this giant, uh, uh, villain in his canon, Uh, and there, there is that feeling of just like, Oh man, that's it. You know, <laughs> again, I'm going to say it also. That's it. Uh, <laughs> So it, 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 is, it does make for an interesting conversation with the reader that there is sometimes on a, like a macro level, there's King saying like, yeah, face your fears and you will find that it is not so bad. But also he wants you to be afraid. He's got like this interesting like dual allegiance as a writer to want to scare the reader and also kind of discourse about the nature of fear with the reader. And sometimes it works beautifully and sometimes it kind of works as like a a sort of, uh, uh, you know, turning the lights on at the end of a a fun night Mm -hmm. at the bar. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, I'm not gonna think about that moment. I'm gonna think about the moments when I was scared. You know, and and it's kind of up to you to uh, decide which moments you invest in. Because again, King's not planning all this out. He's just kind of, he's just kind of going for it.
1: He's riffing, he's riffing.
0: This is all well and good, but why is he called Bob Gray? (laughs) (laughs) All right, we got away from that. Because he's an
2: alien.
1: I don't know, other than the fact that Bob Gray is so like simple and easy, and that makes it utterly terrifying at the same yeah. time.
2: Why is in fairy tale? Why is Charlie's middle name McGee? Why is he Charlie McGee? The same name as the protagonist in Firestarter. There it what, is. Does it <laughs> uh, what does it mean?
1: What does it mean? Yeah,
2: it's fucking. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> I I I side with Allie on that. I think that it is like. It's meant to just be this very generic sort of name. But also, like, even in it, you know, again, with the Patrick Hochstetter moment, like, Pennywise as Clayface, essentially, is established. And there is something amorphous about Grey. Mm. You know, there's something shapeless right. about what it is. So, like, it makes sense that, uh, that Grey would kind of... Uh, uh, be a be a keystone to his uh, to his identity. Also, Bob is a thing we do in the water, usually around eddies. So oh uh, it's all connected to you know the the Coriolis effect going down the drain. Nah, um, don't,
0: don't forget that I've got I've got a mute button at my end, right? And I <laughs> <laughs> You've also got a PhD, though. You've you've got to appreciate it. Come on. No, <laughs> yeah, this is this is the level of bullshit that I used in my Viva. This is how I got my PhD. Exactly. <laughs> So just to clarify for listeners who haven't read this book in however long, or have never read it or whatever, we have this entity that came to Derry, came to Earth like millions of years ago before there was humanity. We see that in this scene where the kids create a sweat lodge and they go into a trance it's a beautiful scene that as well because when they're down there it's like a sort of four by four box but whilst they're in the trance they feel like they're in a ballroom and it's just i think king Mm -hmm. writes about the distortion of mental states really well um in -hmm. this book in particular and that Mm -hmm. then mirrors later on when when Bill is being thrown across the macroverse, he describes that as like a huge ballroom floor again.
1: Also when they're in the house at Nybald Street, every, yeah. all of the dimensions get messed up and he's got to like reset, Bill has to recenter
0: Stan because he's like, the ceiling's too high. In, in a weird, ironic, paradoxical way, surrealism is kind of like the linchpin of this. Mm-hmm. Like the surreal, the most insubstantial, is the thing that holds it together structurally. That's probably worthy of an academic treatise. But um, you've got... <laughs> So it's the, the the thing comes to Earth millennia ago, bides his time literally underground or whatever, whether he lives in some kind of interstitial abstract space or whether he physically lives underground in his lair, who knows. He also exists in this other form on the in the macroverse, which is this place outside our universe. He exists out there as this thing that's known as the deadlights, which is kind of like it's like an anti-light it's a light that is the opposite of light it's a dark light and and he lives up there and like you said the most terrifying thing at the end of the stakes when when billy's battling him mentally is that if you go through that membrane Mm -hmm. into the the outer dark into what's known in the wider king world as the to dash darkness if you go out there you never come back
1: Mm -hmm.
0: so I don't know whether it's impossible to work it out or whether it's just written in such ways to leave so much ambiguity, but it feels to me like the it that we meet in Derry is actually a kind of avatar and that the mm. real governing consciousness exists elsewhere. That's the broadest way I envisage this creature. Are you on board with that?
1: That is absolutely how I see it too. Like the real it is the it that is outside Mm-hmm. The the one that, as you said, once you cross that barrier, you're never coming back. That's where the real it work lives and exists in my brain. And the Pennywise in the sewer and the werewolf and, and all the, the zombie and all the other forms it takes is like a puppet version mm. of itself. It's like an avatar. Exactly. Like you said it's the thing that it's the only way your little tiny human brain can comprehend this entity that is so far outside of our, our universe um, is to give it a form. And the form it takes is whatever scares the living shit out of you.
2: Yeah. 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 It like, I I don't even know if we have said this name once in either episode yet, but, but uh, it is so consciously Lovecraftian like mm-hmm. King, is a, mm-hmm. King is a big Lovecraft fan sure and uh this this book has Lovecraft in you know just drenched all over its pages and one of the things that Lovecraft did so well was the racism was the racism <laughs> which this book also is just revels in occasionally um no besides that his other skill uh, is that Lovecraft was uniquely gifted at describing a monster that cannot be described. And, you know, to the point where so many victims in Lovecraft stories kind of meet the same fate that, that Tom Rogan does. Like, you just see the thing and your, your brain pops. Like, you just can't handle it. You go crazy.
1: I've always thought that was, like, cheap. It's so unreal. You can't imagine it. Your brain can't hit. <laughs> ha- and I'm like, well... It, it could you try could you try and tell me something
0: this is my issue with like just
1: try just a little bit
0: <laughs> tentacles how about tentacles my problem with lovecraft is just describe the fucking monster.
1: just something like even okay even comparatively to it to to king's book it like when it's a giant spider i was like oh mm-hmm. okay sure but like, at least you told me what it was. It's a giant spider. It's a giant spider. With Lovecraft, it's like you cannot comprehend on any format.
2: <laughs> I'll defend Lovecraft for for a moment. Just he does describe a lot. Like you, can, you there are descriptions. But my my reason for bringing him up is just that I, I think King takes that ball and and attempts to do exactly like what you're saying. Like he he describes the spider. He describes the multiverse plane on which this creature actually exists because that's yes. why it's indescribable it's indescribable because it, it is the deadlights it's outside of the deadlights the deadlights also exist around it because like that's the border of the mental sumo match that you engage it with during the ritual of chud like it is the deadlights it's separate from the deadlights it's Part of the macroverse, it's immortal, it's eternal, but there's it also lays eggs, but also there are like creatures <laughs> that are bigger than it and like it's superiors. Like it is all of these things. And I, again, like I think the fear that Lovecraft taps into with the oh my God, it's so indescribable sort of feeling is that we love to categorize and we love to put things in little boxes. And if it, ref- if the monster refuses to do that, if it's, if its rules don't make sense to us, if it does have that non Euclidean geometry that, uh, that like the house on Niebolt Street has, or the Sweat Lodge has, or anything like that, like it is it is incredibly damaging to us psychically. And you even see like during the ritual, most of it is is happening psychically, and yet it is still inflicting mm-hmm. a physical toll on its body uh, without any like you know action being done against it. It's all it's it's all about that connection between the the mind and the body, and like the 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 ability to uh, perceive and understand these incredibly, uh, uh, uncomfortable ideas, uh, you know, just on a purely like geographical level. I think that, I think that's one of the reasons why I love the last 200 pages of this book. Cause it really is King being like, oh, okay. Lovecraft is afraid to describe dimensions. I'm going to fucking, I'm going to show you how hard it is to describe by describing it in rich detail,
0: uh, and see how comfortably it sits with you. Well, let me ask you something, Ali, particularly, right, because sorry, this if this sounds like I'm patronising, I'm really not. It's just that uh, me and Nat are super fans. <laughs> we need to take a breath in a minute because this has got a little bit tinfoil hat shouting at clouds. We people. haven't even <laughs> talked about the wallpaper yet. <laughs> let me ask you in particular, Ali, as someone who has not yes. read The Dark Tower, for example, and not read some of King's more metaphysical mm-hmm. work, how did you feel about the last 200 pages? Because this novel for so long is this very earthy tale of kind of haunted America. And then in the last 200 you know, something pages, it just goes nuts and it can be a real shock. And I, I know it can be a real dis- disappointment to many readers. My dad still says to me on occasion, that fucking turtle. So <laughs> um, what, what did you make of it particularly?
1: Okay, so yes, I have not read The Dark Tower because I am by nature a pleasure delayer, so which is a stupid <laughs> thing to be. It's a really stupid thing because life is short, and who knows? I should read it, but I, I pace things out. But anyway, um, the last 200 pages of it are, for me, some of the greatest thing that King has ever written. Hmm. Ah. All, all the c- cylinders are firing. I, I feel like it should be studied, like I, I'm surprised that anyone's disappointed. I'm a little like I want to chat with your dad now. You don't. I I have questions. <laughs> like, what what is not working for you? Because it is for me, like as a reader, in it an incredible joyride of like horror and greatness and terror. And and as a writer, like I look at it as a writer and I'm like, oh, look at how tight it is. Like, pay attention to what he's doing because it is so just locked together, like the moment to moment. And I know, I know we talked about how he's not a plotter, but like this, I feel it has to be the exception to that rule because I don't know how else you can possibly go literally mid-sentence uh. into a, a time travel back to when their kids... Picking up the same sentence, and then moving in a, in that into that story, and then back into the adult story, and then it's one of my favorite things I've ever read that he has written. Like I, I, I really want to chat with your dad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Get him on the phone. Oh god, that would be that would end the podcast. Um... <laughs> One what, what of these days, if, if you want a real laugh, I will do a sit-down episode with my old man about House of Leaves, which is a book, the mere existence of which drives him into a frothing, angry mania. Oh, he just, yeah. I, ha- I mean,
1: yeah. I have feelings about House of Leaves, so, you know, I, I, can, I can understand not being a super fan.
0: Okay. Well, we'll, we'll leave that for another day. But, yeah, he, <laughs> so he, he read The Stand and adored it, loved it, and we watched the miniseries together. and That was one of my intros to King watching that miniseries with my dad. And then I read this and gave it him to read and he loved all the kid stuff. And then the last bit just, just drove him insane. Um, but yeah, anyway, anyway. Um, so I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad that you got that from it because I, I, it is, it, it's not something I think you can necessarily expect going into the story. And if anyone hasn't read no. the novel, Kind of gird your loins, but also get excited because it is the most I-, I can't think of a many moments in King's fiction where you feel the stakes that much when when mm-hmm. Bill is sliding mm-hmm. across that floor and sliding towards oblivion it- i didn 't feel safe you know it doesn't feel like you mm-hmm. know it's gonna be a happy ending it- this this could be terrible, yeah, and that brings us the turtle because the thing he's sliding past in this macroversal semi-abstract existential psycho-geographical struggle as he's been flung across the universe. He's sliding back past this ginormous turtle. Um who I think of as Maturin the turtle, but I'm not sure if he's named here or whether that is later in the Dark Tower. Do you know that?
2: I I'm with you, yeah. I everybody calls him Maturin, uh in like, you know, Yeah,
1: I know he's Maturin. Oh. Is it is it said? Is it I don't. Well, see, now I'm 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 questioning myself because now I'm wondering if it's just like I culturally have absorbed that yeah. he's maturing, Right. even though I haven't read the Dark Tower yet. Or like, is he actually called? I, I, I'm starting to think he's not actually called that.
0: Well, I don't think the Dark Tower is that culturally embedded, though, that you would pick that up from elsewhere. I think I feel like he must be if you picked it up. Um,
1: I certainly did.
0: Right. Well, well, maturing has vomited up our universe. Which makes our reality seem a puny thing in itself. You know, it's the kind of detritus love. of i having a bad stomach. <laughs> and it's it's this beautiful scene because the turtle the turtle is kind of over it, right? The turtle's just kind of like, Let me nap. I really can't be arsed with your battle. <laughs> and and Billy's sliding past. And then in one of my favourite throwaway moments, really kind of blinking you could miss it, there's this Comments that Bill becomes aware that there is something even greater beyond the turtle because mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. think the turtle is the guardian of all things that are, is good. I mean, I mean, it feels all about plotting, it feels like you know, the turtle is a late addition. Oh, yeah, throw a turtle in there, that's crazy enough. But then you realize he was there in the very first chapter yeah. with Georgie. Absolutely, he just becomes momentarily fixated on this. Is it is it wax or paraffin? Yeah, turtle wax. It's Turtle Wax. And he sees the turtle and notices it. And then, you know, a thousand pages later, we have Maturin. But if you think he's the arbiter of all that is good for so long, there is this reference, this teasing nod to something greater that's never named or not even pursued any further. Now, this is where we get incredibly geeky. (laughs) I think that is a entity known as Gan. Of course. Do you agree, now? Do you think that's Gan? Of course. Would you like to concisely tell my listeners what Gan is?
2: Uh, can it be done concisely? I guess so. Gan is, is King's God, basically. Uh, uh, like the over-god. the over God. Uh, In some uh, 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 books of the Tower, too, it's, mm-hmm. it's referenced that maybe he is the Tower itself or that the Tower yeah. is a manifestation of Gan. But Gan is basically like the Ur-force, the Ur-creator. Um, the the supreme. If it were a little later in the day and I'd had more coffee, I'd be able to remember the Tolkien analog. But Tolkien's big, not Morgoth, but the the god of the Tolkien universe. He's basically that, the big cheese. And there's you know there's probably someone even bigger than him. Like it's turtles all the way up. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's essentially what Gan is. He's
0: the uh, he's he's the godhead. And his opposition is the Crimson King, right? Who is mm. the the great villain, the Darktile, wants to take down all of existence. We'll leave that for another day.
2: Who in Insomnia is described as very much like Pennywise. And Insomnia is another uh, dairy novel. Uh, but the Crimson King is, is someone who can take your fears and, and
0: turn them real and all that shit. And in, in Insomnia, he's known as the Kingfish. And I uh-huh. am convinced that I read the word Kingfish in relation to Pennywise in it. There's a lot of words. It's very Yes, a lot of words. You know what? I think I think perhaps we're giving King a bit more credit than he's due. I think a lot of the time he's just kind of like riffing on, on ideas. And totally.
1: Well, because it's it's his iconography. It's like the, the things that he, you're going to see them repeat. And it's not necessarily like he actively is like, I will put a Pennywise reference in this book. Right. It's just that these things are part of his language. And this is how he speaks to us.
0: And I do find that sense of whether it's repetition or whether it is world building or universe building or whatever, I do find it genuinely thrilling in the way that, in the way that I find Lovecraft's imagination, thrilling never is delivery, but his imagination, this, mm-hmm. this depth of deep time and all of that stuff. I love it. And I love it in King. I get this kind of like really thrilled frisson when I recognize a, a connection here or a connection there, or, or oh, it's all part of mm-hmm. something else. I do love that. And I think that's part of what I love about this book is that you've got this earthiness of the love and the loyalty between these kids in the face of such, such titanic, like abyssal odds. You know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of paraphrasing what Mike Flanagan said about the dark tower now, but it is this abyssal darkness, this thing that is so much greater than our universe, let alone our individual puny lives. And yet, yet they stand against it. And I I do find it thrilling in that way and in the way that very very few fantastical novels have ever made me feel i think it's something special in the ink and the paper of this story that doesn't get into many stories
2: i agree and i also i agree with ali too that like i have never really understood why people give this ending shit like Mm -hmm. to the point where again (laughs) we can get into the machete chapter two uh uh movie uh at our at our peril but like even then they make it such a running joke of like his endings suck all of his endings suck and like what other novel can you get this ending and also what kind of ending besides this one would serve this novel like we've seen similar stories that king has written that have a much smaller ending that have a much earthier ending like the outsider Mm -hmm. uh duma key like just you know really enjoyable novels, but they end very neatly. They end very Mm -hmm. kind of mundanely and like the heroes beat the bad guy. It's like, okay, yeah, that that's exactly how that little game should have gone. But it is more than that. It is this cosmological struggle. It's exactly as, as you're describing, Neil, it's about how uh, small we are as humans compared to the rest of the universe. And it's that because it's also about how small we are as children in this universe that we don't understand the adult world. Like it all comes back to those thematic uh, linchpins that, that make this such a cohesive whole as a, as a work of art. It's about how tiny we are and how that feeling of vulnerability never goes away, even though we learn more and more and more. Uh, And maybe we start to like feel like a better footing uh, in the, the kind of, you know, the, the perspective that we have of this vast universe, we're still fucking blips and like there are still forces against us that are so vast, they don't even make sense. They don't even go by the rules of physics and time and, and, and linear experience that we're so desperate to hold on to because that has given us our foothold. And yet we still have love. We still have companionship. We still have a, a unity that somehow manages to uh, be a compelling counterweight to uh, the nothingness, to the to the toadash darkness, to the to the receding prim, to whatever fucking nerdy words you want to give to it. Uh, because ultimately, most of King's works for all of the pet cemeteries and revivals and all that stuff, the vast majority of his works tend to come down to humans are often good at heart, and that there is love and that there is uh, there is a counterpoint to the darkness if if you can hold on to it uh, he's 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 he's, a, he's squishy in that regard
1: uh, and that's
2: that's one of the reasons why we love him that's one of the reasons why he he uh, his characters are full of such heart uh, because that's the the kind of place that he is writing from uh, so i i find this ending to be uh, you know so beautiful and weird and as as ali said too like just something i come back to as a writer all the time of just like what what is possible, what can words do, uh, and and what can structure do, and how it can inform it. Like it's just such a such a, a fucking singular experience, uh, and yet it also like reminds me of like the works of Hermann Hesse. It reminds me of the end of two thousand and one. Like there's just like this great cosmological. It reminds me of literally doing acid, which I think he was probably drawing on. And like like again, like, King was a fucking... He was a head in the 60s. He was... A, he loved drugs. He loved acid. Uh, and like, there is something when you take hallucinogens, which I'm not advocating, but uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a great thing to have done in your past. Uh, because it, uh, it does like kind of open up your perception of like, oh shit, I don't understand anything.
1: Also, I... I love that he, in going to those places of like the world is so much bigger than we could ever imagine, you know, not, not to be too Hamlet-y, but like, I love that what he, when he, I feel like King especially, and a lot of other writers do this, and I feel like Mike Flanagan absolutely does this, but the idea that when you dig so deep into the darkness that like the darkness will open up into mm-hmm. hope. And it's the thing that, that that is where you find the ability to carry on. And like, that's quite literally the entire ending of this book is that they have the capacity to hold on to themselves and to each other with love and hope that they're going to get through this. And that's the only means by which they do get through it. Like, it's simple belief. It's it's just saying that these characters care and love and matter, and that is enough. And it's just so fucking beautiful.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I often uh, think of the distinction between existentialism and nihilism because I consider myself to be an existentialist, and yet like nihilism is like to me mm. the, the flip side of it. You know, nihilism is uh, uh, nothing matters, but existentialism is nothing matters so everything matters everything matters yeah and and that feels like a
0: very similar kind of
2: motif to this yeah i
0: feel like king would well he would in his own words he would not truckle with nihilism you know what i mean he um (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. his his books are about the the opposite that they're about absolutely i mean this book is about finding meaning in absolute chaos and the only meaning is love and your friends, right? And I, I think that is the, the sweetest thing you can take from so many sour moments. But you know what? I want to come back to the ending in a little bit in a, in a different way because it's a nice way to finish. Before we do, because we've talked at such length about so many madcap kind of existential things, let's bring it back a little bit to the, the, the text and the, the earthbound stuff, which I think we've neglected a little bit, right? Because <laughs> one of my favourite aspects of this book is the idea that Pennywise has been this very real malignancy in Derry since forever. A lot of his past iterations is is on this 27-year cycle. And every time he wakes up, he does something. And and they are told, a lot of them, in these these segments in the book that are called interludes. Let's
1: do the interludes.
0: (laughs) Right, well, you answered my question. I was going to say that that, that's when adult Mike basically goes around researching the history of the town. And I was going to ask... Do you like those parts of the book or did they get in the way of the story for you?
1: Well, OK, when I first read it as a kid, I I, I didn't care about the interludes because it was a break in the action. And, yeah. and I, you know, my little tiny brain didn't want to break in the action. As an adult, I adore the yeah. interludes. Yeah. I think they are like this book is so big. It's so ridiculously big, that you could make the very logical argument that the interludes are not needed. They don't propel the story along. It's just, it's quite literally a moment where you're like, oh, we already know this is happening every 27 some odd years. But like, it's more than just knowing it. Like, now I'm going to take you on this journey, and I just think some of the interludes are so good. And obviously, for me, the black spot that is a short story in itself. Mm. Like the black spot is my absolute favorite interlude. Um, I think also because I just love Mike so much and i love this, these, this time he spends with his father and, and he Mm. puts this incredible thing in about how, like when Mike would go to the hospital to visit his dying father, he had to like think of things to talk about because the death was like embarrassing It was, it was like hard and he felt self-conscious watching his father go through this experience. And I, it's such a little throwaway moment and it gutted me because like, yes, like that's exactly what it feels like. It's too vulnerable sometimes for words. And my other absolute, and, and I love that like, it's the moment where Mike also gets to acknowledge that the bird that terrorized him is the bird that his father saw like there's a realness to it i feel like that's the moment where mike is like this is very real and has been going on for a very long time my other favorite one is the absolutely bonkers like murder in the bar
0: yes um claude hero people
1: are getting hatcheted and everyone else is like i'll get another pint like what is even happening
0: I mean, that, that, that is like a night in the town I grew up in, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I feel it feels very British. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I love the interludes. I crave them. I want to know more. Mm-hmm. I, I could read a whole book that's just about this yep. clown through time. And this, yep. this TV series that the machetes are making, this Welcome to Derry, when I f- yeah. first heard about it, Was supposed to be that I thought it was, Mm. you know, kind of an anthology of of dairy through time and and its recursions. Now it seems to be more like a Stranger Things esque thing about its origins in the modern day. And there's like a a, a military installation, and it sounds very Stranger Things. Um, Mm. So I've I've lost pretty much all hope for it. I'll watch it (laughs) till it's right, but I I expect nothing. But I would have loved to have seen. A dramatisation of this, you know, because actually I plotted out some of what happened. So like the first recorded thing, 1740, the Derry Township disappears in its entirety, um, all 300 settlers. And King does one of his favourite things, which is compare a big disappearance to the Roanoke Island thing, you know. He loves Roanoke I first came across the Roanoke Island disappearance in it, and I thought that the word Croatoan sounded like the most evil word, and then I thought what it actually meant, and I was like, ah, shit, one less mystery. Then it jumps to, like, 1851, and a guy called John Markson poisons his his entire family with mushrooms. Um, My favourite in its enigma, in that I want to know more about it, 1876, slaughter of the lumberjacks at the mm-hmm. kandusky Stream. Mm. These lumberjacks are slaughtered. That feels like a Laird Baron story that I want to read. um And then you've got the big ones, like 1904, begins with Claude harrow's rampage in the bar, ends with the kitchen at Ironworks, the particularly cruel Easter egg hunt where like 100 kids get killed. And then the last iteration, I believe, before the summer of 58, is. The Bradley Gang they sent that I love that chapter when it's like Bonnie and Clyde crew come into town and all of the town turn up to shoot them um and then that ends with the black spot which is the the racist clan attack on this this African American only army bar basically and that's where you get the reference to Dick Halloran from the Shining
1: mm-hmm. so mm-hmm.
0: I mean, there is so much story there, right? It is literally is the story of an entire town. I just love it. And I love that people pop up and names pop up. And like Mr. Keene, the creepy pharmacist, was, was there at the Bragley Gang killing. And, and you see people's mm-hmm. surnames. And having I mean, grown up in a small town where names, and let's be honest, genetics, reappear, reappear like generation after generation. It felt so real to me, so lived in and, and, and accurate to how towns work. I, I'll actually go one step further, too. And and I, I am not going to be bullshitting
2: here, even though it might sound like I, I am going to be bullshitting. I'll stipulate first. I love the interludes as well. I think they're incredibly important to Mike's character development because he really doesn't have that much outside of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and like th- this is really where we get, you know, because he's not in uh, he doesn't do much in the sewers. Uh, he's not in the sewers as an adult. Like, this is where
0: we get the, the richness of Mike and his relationship with his dad. Can I jump in and say one thing, Nat? Sorry. Sure. What we neglected when we talked about Matt last time about Mike last time is we talk about all these people having their, their skills and the things, apart from Bev, you know, we covered that, but how they all go on to great things. I think the thing that's easy to miss with Mike is that Mike has had to live with the fear that they feel for his mm. entire life. Well, that's actually, I, yeah, I was actually going to uh, go into that. Uh, sorry to interrupt, finish your thought, yeah. but yeah, no, no that's yeah, There is a quiet heroism to the fact that he has had to endure. He's never had the psychic break that they've all had,
2: right? Uh, so, so basically, what I was going to say that that uh, might sound bullshitty, but I don't, I don't mean it to be because I mean it very genuinely. Is that it's more than just the story of a town. It really is a story of America in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like there is something, particularly this time through, there was something that hit me that was so poignant that this is a story about a bunch of white Christian boomers who leave their small town and become fucking rich and successful. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they are remembering, you know, they grew up in the 50s, of course. And I don't know what it's like in the UK, Neil, but particularly in the US, like the 50s is just like this apocryphal embodiment of when America was, like every time a racist is like, make America great again. They're usually thinking of the fifties. It was just like the quintessential white America time. You know, it's leave it to beaver. It's women knew their place. The the coloreds were in their own neighborhood. And like, there was just like, everything was neat and regimented. Uh, we had the GI bill for white people and like everyone was was upwardly middle-class and, and moving on up. Uh, and so these, you know, you have these, these hegemonic children growing up in the 50s and they leave and they have, you know, the baby boomer dream, the dream that fucking Stephen King himself lived. Like, they just became huge successes. Uh, And it it requires their black friend to remind them that the 50s were fucking horrible. They were terrifying. The past was awful. And the only other character who really remembers that and never loses that is the Jewish character. And, you know, in this particular case, he's not strong enough to... Live yeah. with that, but it's the two non hegemonic characters. That is such a great point. And what precipitates this, of course, is a gay bashing. Like, again, like it's one of those like reminders in the Reagan 80s, who was also a period when people were like, the 50s were great and Reagan is gonna make the 80s the new 50s and shit like that. And it's like, no, a fucking gay person was just fucking murdered. And this happened all the time in the 50s. And we, like, the bulk of this narrative is a bunch of rich white baby boomers slowly realizing that, oh, America in the fifties was a fucking nightmare and we can't let that happen again. And like these interludes uh, show that like, no, this was, this is baked into this country's past, man. This is just like every generation is this forget, forgetting of atrocity. And it, it, the fact that Mike is the historian, there's just something so poignant about that this time around. Like, no, he
0: doesn't get to forget this. He lives in this.
1: Yeah. And he's had, and
0: he stays poor. He stays poor. Right. Because they, they, they don't, they love to make that point that like, like Bill feels so sorry for him. And, and they all feel a kind of guilt, but it's a very, right. very white guilt. You know, it's a really, mm-hmm. you know, that quite aside from the forgetting they're going to do by, by, by supernatural cause they're going to forget about that guilt when they go back to their nice lives.
1: I think one of the, one of the things too, that I, I, cause I always, like when I reread it this time, I was like, my God, like, Mike having to deal with this, it's just, it's a constant microaggression. Mm. Like he just consistently is not allowed to forget how horrible everything was and, and will be. And I do, which is why, he has, for me, the most satisfying ending. Like when King has that moment where like Mike is like, I think I'm going to leave Derry. And I was like, yes, baby, leave <laughs> Derry. Yes, baby, I want you to have a life that is not about guarding horror. Like I just, I, I want this so badly for him. And I agree, Nat, like Stan also, like the, the non-Christians like don't make it out well. Um and even a little bit like not not to be too white women y, but like even a little bit like part of me's like, well, and also like Bev has money, but like she's beaten. Right. Like her adulthood also sucks to a degree. Like it's really just the the, the, the white Christian boys that really really have a good time of it as adults. <laughs>
0: Oh, and they really, really indulge you as well. And what I will say on a, yeah. on a different note: because I was talking then about about Bill and his um, sort of condescension towards Mike. I mean, that's, yeah. that's too harsh because they are good friends, but it's there in the subtext, right? It's ignorance, yeah, yeah. The thing with Bill, right, and all these these white guys going having great lives and coming back. Don't get me wrong, we love them; they're heroes. But Bill's such a prick because he's such a prick, <laughs> right? So, for a start, I hate the bit. You know the bit when he attacks his English lit creative writing lecturer for basically being a snob because he doesn't like mm-hmm. his scary story. I, I, as somebody who's, who adores King and thinks he's basically the greatest storyteller of the last hundred years, it hurts me that he thinks that <laughs> academics don't like him. Do you know what I mean? It's such a weird thing. It's like, we, I, I love you, Stephen. Stop telling me that I don't get the point. Because I do. You know, I I get why story is more important. I used to teach a thing about, like, context and and interpretation and close reading, and it used to be basically why did – I had this Venn diagram, and it was like, why did Chekhov describe the paintings as blue? And on one side, you've got all of this reason, that reason, this reason, that reason. On the other side, it was just because the curtains were fucking blue. And I stand on that side of things, you know, sometimes – I'm ranting, sorry listeners. I get I get <laughs> I get aggravated. But from the get-go, adult bill annoys me because of that. And then, yeah, just got to cheat on my wife for not without any kind of consequence. My wife who looks exactly like my childhood friend. Yeah. And it just goes unquestioned. Yeah. It does. It sure does. Who
1: also, like your wife, who also is risking her entire life to come and find you uh-huh. yeah. and help you. And is and then it's like oh no my wife's in the sewers. Yes, I shouldn't have slept with my childhood best friend.
0: And I know they're trying to do some kind of callback to the you know (laughs) the 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 scene that we talked about last time with the the the, the sex in the sewers. I know there's a callback there, but it it is unnecessary. It just doesn't. It's the only bit where it feels like we've forgotten to put a love story in this book, and we haven't really got any spare parts that can have (laughs) one. So it has to be like, why would I've never understood why, for narrative neatness, would she not sleep with Ben? Because she ends up with Ben, she does. It, it, it never makes sense to me that that it, she. It only Bill. happens so that neither
2: of them hear the phone. Like that's the yes. main reason. Like, yes. Yeah, because because Kay is calling Bev, uh, and isn't someone calling Bill too? Or no, they're at Bill. Eddie, so Eddie's so, calling. Oh, Eddie's calling, that's right. So it's it's yeah. it's only done so that they don't hear the phone calls. Which um, also I agree. like
1: what? <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. Phone
1: ring when I'm...
2: And it's so what? it's so fucking shamey too, in a weird like it's yes. at once indulgent because it's like I'm gonna sleep with my childhood crush, and it's okay. Uh, I'm gonna feel guilt for a moment, but uh, you don't need to feel guilty, reader. Uh, and but then it's also like, oh, and because they slept together, uh half of the team almost dies like oh, yeah. there yeah, yeah it is i'm reading it this time through even though i've read it so many times i legitimately legitimately was like wait she they don't sleep together though right like she mm. she puts a stop to this like for some reason i just remembered that that doesn't get consummated because she's like oh no i love ben uh and it didn't, <laughs> when it, when they do consummate it, it was like oh i forgot about this and then of yeah. course that's the awesome. trigger
1: it's like a weird way in which she's like, "Oh, that reminds me, I slept with all of you."
2: Right. Mm. That's her. That's, like, her big, uh,
1: that's uh, a big. That's okay. That's how you remembered that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. What? Yeah. Bev's and just in, so in, in, in a long, secular. long novel, I think it's the only plot misstep. I don't yeah. think there's really a narrative misstep. You know, there are problems that we've talked about in language and narrative voice and things. You know that I think we kind of reconciled last time, but. That is the only actual plot misstep that I can really think of.
2: I feel like the eggs are a little bit too controversially, maybe. But like I feel the eggs to me always rub me the wrong way. Like you that's mean something... like
1: the fact that there's yeah. like a gajillion of them and there's yeah. no way that Ben could have accomplished yeah. that? And yeah, just the fact that
2: Pennywise lays eggs. Like there's part of me that's like, okay, Pennywise is bound to the its corporeal form, so like sure, maybe it can lay eggs. Maybe they're parthenogenetic, like maybe it is laying and fertilizing of itself. But it's also just like, you're an eternal being.
1: Right. You live in the like...
2: It always makes me think of crits as. Yeah, it's a very like critters, like 80s sort of fucking gremlins y thing. And it's, and just even like, you know, it even makes me think of like, how could the world sustain more than one it? Like, what, you're not gonna, you're gonna run out of food. Like, it's just like such a. (laughs) like it pulls me out of it in such a logistical way where I'm like oh this was just like going to be like a this was just to have like a bit of a more pulse pounding ending and again if you're going to do that then thematically it should be Beverly who is you know so terrified yep. of sex that is killing the eggs but no Beverly's just cradling Audra her her beta version <laughs>
0: Right, well, listen, I've got 15 minutes left here, right? And I I refuse to let this conversation devolve into criticising this book. So I'm going to get a stranglehold and make it positive again. Yes, because we love this book. We love it, Stephen, if you're listening. (laughs) So the ending, the forgetting. Mm. So, again, to bring this up to speed, when the kids leave Derry through various means at the end of the summer of 58, they all, in a weird way, forget everything. And, and in a way that I didn't realize until this current reread, the act of them remembering is basically the structure of the book, right? They all mm-hmm. get to go as adults, and, and then they're having these flashes of memory, and then you get the story of that memory. I hadn't I didn't quite got that device until this reread. Um, when they leave again in, after the final battle, those that are left, they begin to forget again. And the question is, is it a tragedy or not? Do you think that is a sad ending? And I'll give you my theory in a moment, but do you think it's a sad ending or a hopeful ending or something else? I think it is a tragedy
2: in that growing up is a tragedy. Like it is I, I think it is the perfect ending. Mm. I absolutely adore it. I meant when I said when I uh, in our like earliest emails, <laughs> When we were scheduling this episode where like every time I read this book, it leaves me with just this gaping hole in, in my heart at the end uh, and like puts me in a in a reader funk that very few other books do because I'm just it like it fills me with bittersweet, like nostalgia and loss. And again like I, I'll echo back to what I said uh, in the last episode. Uh, cause I stand by it, um, that this is a book that could only have been written by someone entering middle age mm-hmm. uh, and that this is that informs every moment of this, particularly, particularly the ending, uh, because your childhood does start to fade away, and those relationships start to fade away. Everything starts to drift and calcify. Uh, reason why they call it over the hill is because it's all descending after a certain point. Um, and I think this ending, nails that in, in such a beautiful way. I think it's some of the best writing in King's career. Like I, I I agree with Allie too, that like the whole, like last quarter of this book is that, uh, but particularly this epilogue, it's a, it's a beautiful victory for Mike who finally gets to like live a life. Uh, And it's, it's just a reminder that like, you know, these formative relationships in our lives, uh, we don't, get to hold on to like they're all impermanent everything is impermanent because we live in linear time and we have a a limited amount of bandwidth in our stupid little mortal brains and so like there are relationships that were the most important thing to us in the universe when we were children and there are people that we don't even think of anymore like they start to forget eddie's last name almost immediately it is so unfair but it is what growing up is all about
1: Um, I agree with that. It's a tragedy to a degree, but also I feel like a, the group formation was not, in my opinion, I've never considered it organic. I, I, I've always kind of suspected the turtle brought them together, um, because the turtle is always present in their backgrounds. Um, and there's that one moment when they're at the Barons and Bill is very much like, This kid is not part of the group, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> that <is." poor> kid. <laughs> you know, that poor well, I mean, good for that kid. He doesn't have to live with this heart, you know. <laughs> but like it did feel like they came together for a purpose, and their purpose was like the execution of destroying this entity. Um and also I'm thinking back to um Stoker actually. I was on a panel with Laura and Laura Semph, who wrote uh, The Clackety, which is a fantastic book that everyone should read. Um, And she was talking about how there is a magic in childhood that you lose and how part of growing up, like you said, Nat, like it's the ritual, the contract is that you have to abandon things. And I do think that very much this book is like, well, we have to give up this magic that we had as children you know like I, i'm also thinking about the fact that like they're so very much children that one of my favorite moments is when they are in the barrens and nothing bad is happening and they play a safari game hmm. do, do you remember this like they're yeah. like oh we're going on a lion hunt right and i'm like they're such children like like bev is being abused and and everything is bad and bill's whole life is terrible but like they're still like, we're children and we're allowed to still be children. And I think, I think the ending is exactly what it needs to be because you have to let go of those things. Like, like you said, Nat, to become an adult, you say goodbye to that magic and it's sad but necessary and you'll never get it back. And that's just how life is. I don't Except know. In like dreams.
2: Except in these weird moments where it suddenly comes back.
1: Right. And then Bill even has that moment where like the bike rides so fast. Yeah. And he's back there again. And he's that kid for a moment. And it's so powerful. It wakes his wife up. Like the magic is there, but you will only touch it a couple of times again. And and it's not for you anymore because you're a grown up now.
0: Like yeah. so it's
1: sad, but so like great.
0: Well right. So, <laughs> so I- I, I've purposely not spoken much for a while because I'm going to talk now. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it home, Neil. Right. Bring it home. What I haven't done in like three hours that was recorded is really, really lay out why this book means so much to me, right? And this ending is key to it. So in, forgive me, list. I'm going to talk for a bit. I know podcast hosts aren't spoke to, but here goes. Oh, you're great. My opinion on the ending falls between your two opinions, right? Because I, I've got something to say, I keep saying right after everything. It's a very Mancunian thing, but it sounds aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> I think the entire book is a great cosmic joke. So these random kids are elected by the turtle, by Gan, whatever. They're elected as these sacrificial lambs on the behalf of the universe or the macroverse or reality or goodness or whatever. And their reward for fighting and defying the monster is to lose the very bond that made them capable of doing it in the first place. So, mm-hmm. to me, it's a great joke. It's a great irony that their friendship only serves to achieve something, and in achieving it, they lose their friendship. That is just so tragic, almost tragicomic, I suppose. You know, in, in in the bleakest terms, it's both real. We all recognize that. I imagine people in a war feel that way. You know, you mm. come together as this, this battalion and then the thing that you've done tears you asunder and leaves you unable to, unable to deal when you go on into life. It, it feels like it's embedded into, into strife and crisis in a really heroic way. And all I can say about the book is that, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do exactly. This is showing off, right? Cause I can do this off the top of my head. My favorite sequence of the book my favorite paragraph perhaps in all of horror literature and it it stands for everything and it goes like this this is how the book pretty much ends not the final line but close to it it goes like this let me try and summon this up you're the actor Nat. you'll understand this feeling and it goes (laughs) so drive away quick drive away while the last of the light slips away drive away from Derry. drive away from memory but not from desire that stays the bright cameo of all we once were and all we believed as children, all that shone in our eyes when we were lost and the wind blew in the night. Drive away and try to keep smiling. Get a little rock and roll on the radio and go towards all the life there is with all the courage you can and all the belief that you can muster. Be true, be brave, stand. All the rest is darkness. I'm so emotional right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. every time. And there are times in my life when I am out running in the hills, often on a late summer's evening, and the day fades, it purples into evening, and there's a certain cast of light against the green, and I find myself smiling, like, ear to ear, without really knowing why. There's this, like, wave of euphoria. And when that happens, two, three times a year, if I'm lucky, I always think of this book. Mm. That's what it means to me. The joy I have, the access to that childhood euphoria that I can still summon on occasion, by chance, I don't know what makes, maybe it's the touching, maybe that the turtle is casting his gaze on me. But when that happens, it's this book I think of. So it is so inextricable, not just from my idea of horror, but from my idea of absolute unbridled joy. Mm.
1: Well, I mean, I feel like what you just described and and that that section that you read, I mean, what is that if not those moments that you are occasionally gifted with Mm. where you recognize that you're alive and that the world is fucking beautiful Mm. and we're goddamn lucky to be here? Like, you don't think about that every day as you go through your day because you think about your dumb job and you think about like, bullshit and someone who like cut you in line or like who honked when you didn't drive fast enough at the green light. Like, but there are those moments, there are those individual moments where you see the magic again. Like it's there. It's it. You're alive. All else is darkness.
2: Yeah. It's a great summation of like why we consume. And also as writers, why we create art, like every book we write or read is just like this little ephemeral sometimes 1200 page ephemeral (laughs) like like capsule of life and experience and we put it down and we feel at once richer for having gone through it and also emptier for now being done with it like it is just this very uh you know we've we've mentioned hamlet already but it is very like the rest is silence it is very uh uh, you know to quote macbeth it is very out out brief candle it is just Mm. like this You know, every work of art is that stand against the darkness. Every book we write, every book we read uh, and somebody else wrote, like it is this uh, uh, stand against the ephemerality of nature and of mortality. And like, no, we exist and we are beautiful and we won't be for long, but you can always touch us again in in dreams, in that dream state. Uh, So it's a beautiful mission statement, too.
1: Yeah, it's just like the way everything will end, the way we know it will end, is what makes what we do and who we are and every day so fucking powerful.
0: I think we better leave it there because <laughs> let's face it, we're not going to say anything more profound. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a ride. Thank you so much for giving me such a big slice of your time over these two episodes. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this has been so much fun we can, we can keep We can do another episode if you want. We didn't touch We didn't touch the wallpaper neil we didn't we didn't we didn't, but you know what The dancing elves, I think we've put the beast to bed um, <laughs> ho- hopefully you know if not, we can always come back in twenty seven years and do it again if needed. <laughs> before you go you you've more than earned the right. Can you tell the listeners? where they can find your books and and what to expect from you next. And, you know, go with you first, Ali. Tell my Um, listeners.
1: Okay, so um, I have two middle grade horror novels out right now. Um, And my next middle grade book is not announced yet but it is um it's coming in <laughs> 25 which feels like a long time but also I have to write it so yeah. it's, <laughs> I, you know <laughs> it's not yet written so <laughs> um, I'm good with it but yeah I'm on the Twitters um my website is alimalanico.org um I'm around and I love to chat about all things horror related so please hit me
0: up and cause Ali's clearly useless at self promotion, I will say the books are <laughs> called Ghost Girl and This Appearing House.
1: Wait, I said that.
0: You didn't. You just said my two books. I didn't. <laughs> Sorry. Now, what about you? Uh,
2: I have uh, uh, one adult horror novel out already called Mary An Awakening of Terror, which is kind of like a. Since since this is a Stephen King thing, themed episode, I'll I'll phrase them in Stephen King uh, terms. That is my homage to Carrie. Uh, It's kind of like a menopausal carry uh, that came out on Nightfire in July of last year. Uh, And then I've got another novel coming out in October, which would love your pre-order, which is called Nestlings, which is kind of my homage to Salem's Lot and The Shining. Um, You can find me on Twitter at Nat Cassidy, Instagram at Katnacity, because I couldn't get my name. Uh, My (laughs) website is natcassidy.com. Nat Cassidy on TikTok. Um. Yeah, I'll, I'm also around to talk horror with anybody, because as you have heard, I can go on a bit.
0: <laughs> and Nat will be <laughs> back on to go on a bit in October to talk about this. Yeah. So that's a that's a fun time. Um, but for now, Ali Magnenko, Nat Cassidy, my tribe of brave losers, thank you for talking scared. Thank you. See you in the stewards <laughs> And we are done. Having listened back to that in the edit, I can only imagine how insane that all sounds if you haven't read the book. But I mean, if you've listened to us for three hours and you haven't read it, then kudos for your commitment. You are my super fans. You should get badges. (laughs) Everyone, I hope you all enjoyed it. The whole two-part thing in its entirety. It was a real labour of love, which I didn't really have time for, but... God, I'm glad I did it. And I'm really grateful to Nat and Ali for offering their time when they don't even have a book to push. It was just generosity and good conversation. So massive round of applause to them. And yeah, I do hope it was worth it and that you each enjoyed listening to us hammer on about increasingly odd stuff. The way that Ali spoke about Bev's characterization in episode one has forever changed the book for me. The way Nat talked about Mike being a representation of America's understory in this episode had an equal impact. It's been a real learning curve, a rediscovery of a book I absolutely adore still, even with its warts. I'm not sure we made the true nature of Pennywise or Bob Gray or It a single degree clearer, but I'm not sure it's really possible to. I think the mystery wrapped in the enigma and covered in clown paint is perhaps one of the things that makes this book tick so well. That said, if you're as nerdy as me and Nat, Ali is excused, then drop me a line and tell me your theories. What is Pennywise? Why is he called Bob Gray? What are the deadlights? What's the macroverse? How does it all fit into the wider King universe? And do you think Pennywise has survived? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TalkScaredPod. And you can email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'm falling a bit behind on emails currently because life has been crazy with work and StokerCon and making the show and stuff. So apologies if you've emailed me already about anything and you're waiting for a response. I do plan on working through the backlog soon. But if you've got an it theory, do send it. If you've enjoyed this slightly different take on talking scared, this literary dissection, then you might be pleased to hear I'm planning more of them. Not too often, because the main show will always focus on authors and their own work, but it's nice to shake things up for you and for me, with alternatives now and again. So, every so often I'll do another of these. Next up, I already know, is Peter Straub's Ghost Story, and I've got some great guests for that. But, what else could I cover? Tell me your ideas. Don't suggest kind of new titles, or just your favourite book. Think it, Ghost Story, maybe The Haunting of Hill House, things like that. Those real totemic books that have made up the modern horror canon. Or a cool alternative, but not just something that came out with great reviews four years ago. Let me know what you'd like to hear about, and maybe who I should invite on to help me do it. But that's for the future. I'm back in just a few days when normal Tuesday service resumes next week, No rest for the wicked, as my old nan would say. My guess then will be Danielle Trussoni and her new novel, The Puzzle Master, which contains way more spooky stuff than the synopsis would suggest. Until then, though, there can be only one way to finish this week. Be true, be brave, stand. All the rest is darkness. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.